If you look around the world today, you might think that there's quite a lot of change and turmoil. Many key country and world-scale political events happening. We've had the state visit this past week of Donald Trump with a bit of talk in the news about whether he'll be winning another term as US president. There's the upcoming leadership contest for the position of UK Prime Minister and the next looming Brexit deadline as well as events in North Korea or Sudan or Syria or wherever else you turn. In the midst of it all, it's good to remember as Christians that God is sovereign, ruling over the world, working out his plans and purposes for the nations. That was something that God's people, Israel, needed to know. Amidst the turmoil of the decline of the Assyrian Empire, and the rise of the Babylonian Empire, and the eventual replacement by the Persian Empire. God's people needed to hear what God was doing, what his purposes were, and that he was still in control. And that's what the book of Isaiah is about. It traces God's purposes from judgment on his people Israel for their idolatry and lack of obedience to him through their exile under Assyria and Babylon, and then their return from exile, and then to the eventual coming of a Savior and Redeemer to properly deal with the problem of sin and rebellion, and ultimately then to the final renewal of all things and the establishment of a new heaven and earth. It is a very broad sweep of time and horizon, has this book. Chapters 1 to 39 that we have been looking at to begin with in this series are set within the context of the final years of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians invaded northern Israel and the northern tribes were were carried away, settled throughout the lands of Assyria. Then Assyria threatened Jerusalem, but God miraculously uh, delivered the city because King Hezekiah of Jerusalem looked to the Lord and, and trusted in him for deliverance. But chapter 39 closes on a low point. Envoys from Babylon visit King Hezekiah, and instead of Hezekiah using the opportunity to give glory to God for the deliverance of the city and for his own personal healing, he instead allies himself with the Babylonians and puts his trust in them. And the chapter closes then with Isaiah announcing that Hezekiah's descendants will one day be carried into exile and will serve the king of Babylon. As David mentioned last week, chapter 40 then begins a completely new section of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 40 onwards looks forward in time to a point towards the end of the Babylonian empire. The people are in exile in Babylon, but Isaiah speaks prophetically about the rise of the Persian empire and the defeat of the Babylonian Empire, and the return from exile that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. Isaiah in chapter 40 onwards therefore speaks to future Israelites, giving them in advance a message of hope and comfort for their situation. Chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A message of comfort. God's judgment on Israel is over. 
He's going to bring them back from exile. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed and all people will see it. He will show himself to be far superior to the gods and idols of Babylon. He is the one who rose over the nations. His words of, of promise endure forever. He rules with a mighty arm and will lead his people home like a shepherd. There is no one who can compare with the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. He does not grow tired or weary. His ways are beyond understanding. He renews the strength of those who hope in him, who wait for him to act. People in exile in Babylon will be thinking, there's just no hope of going home. No exiled nation ever gets to go home. They remain displaced. The people at that time, they're going to be wondering, does God even know where we are? Does he care? And even if he wanted to, could he actually deliver us? Will he deliver us? And Isaiah declares, yes, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power. Speaking prophetically, he announces the Lord's future deliverance and future return from exile. Isaiah chapter 41 continues that idea. Verse 2 announces that God is stirring up from one from the east, calling him into his service. And as the chapter progresses, we come to realize that this is the rising up of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire eventually defeats the Babylonian Empire. And under Cyrus, the people of Israel are allowed to return from exile. Chapter 41, God continues to care for his people. Verses 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its furthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In verses 13 and 14, I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The scattered exiles of Israel, they feel, they feel small and insignificant in the light of these world superpowers and empires. But God says, you are mine. I have not forgotten you. I'm going to help you. At the end of chapter 42, though, Isaiah goes back in time to thinking about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian armies. And he declares that God was right to judge Israel. Although they are his chosen people, they behaved like a blind and deaf servant. They paid no attention to his commands and, and they broke covenant with the Lord, he says. They sinned against him and, and would not follow his ways and so the violence of war and the flames of destruction overwhelmed them and the city of Jerusalem and, and they ended up in Babylon because of God's judgment. God was still right to judge them. But then the good news, Isaiah 43, God says, 
He is going to do something completely new. He is going to do something that has never happened to another nation. He's going to bring his people back from exile. And they will be witnesses again to his mighty deliverance. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Savior, God declares. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Great promises of hope and comfort for God's people in exile. He's not forgotten them. He's going to rescue them. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you might well recognize some of these verses that I've just read. They're the sort of verses that often get written on cards or in promise boxes, along with verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. But I think it's quite important that we take a moment to recognize that these are promises given primarily, given firstly to God's people Israel and given to them in a very specific situation. As I've been stressing for the last few minutes, God's people are in exile in Babylon, and God promises to bring them back to Jerusalem, at least to bring a remnant back. He has redeemed them. He has summoned them. He's going to be with them. Verse 2, when they pass through the waters, they will not be swept away. When they walk through the fire, I assume metaphorically, they will not be burnt. Through his prophet Isaiah, God says to his servant Israel, to his people in exile in Babylon, I've not forgotten you. I've not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41 verse 10. Now, it is possible for us also, us today, to draw comfort from these words. If the people of Israel were God's chosen people, then how much more are we as Christians today chosen and called and redeemed? We are precious to Jesus. But God does not promise, for instance, that as Christians today, we will necessarily be saved from all harm, that we will necessarily prosper. He doesn't actually promise you and me that we will not be swept away during this life in a river of difficulties. He might protect us from hardship in this world, but he doesn't promise deliverance in the way that he was promising to deliver his people in exile. Where we can draw comfort from these lovely, beautiful words in Isaiah, is where the New Testament reaffirms the promises that God was making to His people. 
Hebrews 13 verse 5, for instance, reminds us that God will never leave us or forsake us. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Or Matthew 6, Jesus tells us not to worry because our heavenly Father knows what we need. Or Romans 8, we're told that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Or Philippians 1, that God will bring to completion the work He has started in us. That He is making us like Jesus and He is advancing His kingdom. And at the right time, He is going to take us to our eternal home to be with Him forever. There's no guarantee, promise of physical blessing or freedom from suffering in this world, despite what we might expect if we are currently in a comfortable middle-class existence. But it is true in the words of Isaiah 40, verse 10, that you and I as Christians do not need to fear or be dismayed, whatever happens in this life, for God is with us to strengthen us and help us. He will uphold us with His righteous right hand. We do not need to be afraid. Isaiah 43, verse 1, for God has redeemed us. He has summoned us by name, and we belong to Him. How much more is that true because of Jesus? We belong to God as His children, and no river can ultimately sweep us away. No fire can ultimately consume us, for we are eternally secure in Christ, and nothing can prevent us from being brought into our eternal home with Him. God is the sovereign Lord, and He is working out His purposes in the world and redeeming a people for Himself. And that is incredibly good news. The problem, though, for the people of Israel to whom Isaiah is writing is that even when God brings them back to Jerusalem, the problem of sin will not actually have been dealt with. He can bring them back from exile in Babylon, but what's going to stop Israel, his servant, from rebelling and coming under God's judgment again? Israel, as God's chosen servant, has proven its inability to faithfully follow the Lord and honor Him before the nation. Which brings us then to the passage I particularly want to concentrate on this morning. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 to 9, in the first of the servant songs. I should explain that the title, God's servant, is a key one in the second part of the book of Isaiah. You've uh, maybe heard of the book, A Tale of Two Cities. Well, the second part of the book of Isaiah could be described as a tale of two servants. The first servant is the one that I've already mentioned. God's people, Israel, as God's servant, they're described in chapter 40 onwards as still being blind and rebellious and fearful. Yet God in His grace promises to redeem this servant and to use this servant, people, as His witness to His redeeming power with the exception of one reference, which we're about to look at in this first song, all uses of servant in chapters 40 to 48 refer to this first servant, God's servant Israel. But there's a second servant who increasingly comes into focus as the book develops, particularly chapters 49 to 55. This second servant is described as one who is obedient, gentle, 
and who suffers unjustly. God promises to uphold this chosen servant and uh, to bring Israel back into relationship with him through this first servant. This, sorry, the second servant. The second servant will restore God's divine order and justice to the world. And all references in chapters 49 to 55, with the exception of one, refer to this second servant. You maybe wonder why I'm saying all this this morning, but it's just, it's a really important theme for understanding this second part of the book of Isaiah that we're not entering. There's God's servant Israel on the one hand, but God's chosen and ministering servant on the other. As I said a moment ago, this is the first of four songs about this second servant that we're going to look at. The others are found in chapters 49, 50, and 53, and as you read through them, there's a gradual increasing revelation of what this servant is like and how he brings about God's redemption and the forgiveness of sins through his death. This second servant or or special chosen one will be meek and gentle, but is also a royal figure and a priestly figure and a faithful and effective redeemer. Anyway, today we're just going to look at the first song. So this is Isaiah 42 now. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Let me just take you through that a bit more slowly and focus in a bit on what God is saying about his servant through the prophet Isaiah. Verses 1 to 4 to begin with. God speaks of his servant. God speaks of his servant. Verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. That opening sentence might remind you of the words God the Father spoke when Jesus was baptized, or again at the transfiguration. This is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. For of course, as, as Christians, we know that this promised second servant in Isaiah is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse continues, Isaiah 42 verse 1, I will put my spirit on him. Again, we see how that was true of Jesus at his baptism when the spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. And on on this Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, we're remembering how Jesus has now poured out the Holy Spirit on all who follow him. Verse 1 again, we're told, he will bring 
justice to the nations. This servant will bring about God's just rule, not just in the sense of legal equality or fairness, but in the sense of God's king exercising God's just rule over the nations, bringing God's kingdom in fullness. He will deal with the problem of rebellion and evil so that people can live peacefully in God's just world. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. In other words, he won't accomplish this through loud shouting, through blowing his own trumpet. He will quietly accomplish the purpose of God. He will do so without humbly, without drawing attention to himself. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He won't extinguish those who are weak and struggling. There'll be room in his kingdom for the weak, those who've only just enough life left. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. This is a faithful servant who will obediently do the will of the Lord God. Verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. He, he won't give up. He won't fail. We're not, we're not told the details of, of how he will accomplish all this. We have to wait till later in the book of Isaiah to learn that. But here we're just told what it is he won't do. He won't fail. And finally, end of verse 4, in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. The farthest reaches of the known world will look to this servant. They will put their hope in him for salvation and redemption. In his quiet, unaggressive, unthreatening way, this chosen servant of God will accomplish the salvation of God's people. And these verses we've just looked at are specifically quoted and applied to Jesus by Matthew in his gospel, chapter 12. Matthew, if you know anything about Matthew, he's at pains throughout his gospel to point out the many ways Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. In Matthew 12, verse 15 and following, he says, Jesus fulfilled this servant's song. Verse 15, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Verses five to nine then, God speaks to his servant. So the first four verses of this song are God speaking about his servant. Then these next verses are the words God spoke to his future servant. Verse 5, this is what God the Lord says, the creator of heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. And then Isaiah goes on to give us God's message. But just look at what verse 5 says. We're told that this is God, the Lord who is speaking. Lord here represents the name Yahweh, the holy name of God. I am who I am. I, I will be who I will be. This is the Lord God, the Lord of all who is speaking. God, God the creator, the maker of heavens and earth. Verse 5, he stretches out the heavens. He, he puts the planet and stars into space. He makes the galaxies. He puts in motion us around the sun. 
And he spreads out the earth with all that springs from it. He formed the dry ground. He causes the land to produce vegetation, seed-bearing, plants and trees. He brought forth living creatures according to their kinds, the creatures that move along the ground, wild animals, fish in the sea, birds in the air. He produced it all, and it was very good. And as the pinnacle of his creation, he made human beings, male and female, he created them in his own image. He gave them breath. He gave life to those who walk on the earth. This is the God that Isaiah is describing, the one who is about to speak. And jump over to verse 8. If we're any doubt about the significance or importance of what is being said by this God, look at what verses 8 and 9 tell us. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. God the Lord is the creator and the bringer into being of new things. He cannot be compared to idols. He will not yield his glory to anyone else. He is the sovereign ruler. He rules over all that is past. And he brings new things into being. He tells his people about them in advance. He announces them through his prophets. So what is it that this mighty God says to his servant? Well, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. So this is a chosen servant who has a very special relationship with the Lord, one who is righteous and will act in righteousness. Verse 6 continues, I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. God will not allow his servant to fail, but he will be kept. He will will be made to be a renewer of the covenant between God and his people and, and also one who brings light to the Gentiles. Israel, as God's servant, failed on both those counts. They failed to keep God's covenant because of their sin and rebellion, and they, and they failed to be a light to the Gentiles because they never properly demonstrated what it meant to be God's people. But this special servant, this righteous servant, is going to do both. He will fulfill the covenant, and he will be a light for all nations. Verse 7, he will open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. When we think about Jesus' earthly ministry, we recognize that he did some of those things quite literally. He restored physical sight to blind people. He brought healing to the lame and freed people from imprisonment to sickness. As his kingdom values and teaching are followed, it it does turn societies upside down and bring about release for the poor and the oppressed. Literally. But those physical things are a sign, a pointing beyond to the spiritual transformation that he was bringing about. His physical miracles during his earthly life showed that he had the power to heal the spiritually blind and release the spiritually imprisoned, and bring about a world that is ultimately free of all sickness and suffering. The Lord Jesus is Lord of both the physical world and the spiritual world. That was what Jesus was announcing 
when he read the words of Isaiah 61 in the synagogue that day. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Words originally given to oppressed people in Israel, ultimately fulfilled for all God's people through the work of Jesus, the servant of God. Christ announcing the kingdom of God has come. The first fruits of the work of the Spirit have begun. God's people are being redeemed through His life, His coming death, and His resurrection. It's when we look to Jesus, to His life, His death on the cross, that we understand how the words of Isaiah 43 verse 25 can be true for God's people. Isaiah 43 verse 25, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of the redeeming, sin-paying work of the suffering servant. That's how Israel, that's how God's people will ultimately be set free from sin and be freed to live as God's holy people. It's because of Jesus and His redemption of us that all these promises that we've been thinking about this morning in the book of Isaiah and these, these beautiful descriptions of the coming kingdom of God, these things are made possible because of Jesus, God's righteous servant. God the Lord is like no other. He alone has worked his plan of salvation. Praise the Lord.